Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Kellen, in Episode 7, we talked about governments and how their power comes from the legitimacy they get from the people they're governing. And the big talking point of that episode is that as people's trust in their government decreases and they believe that government to be less legitimate, it puts that government in danger of losing its power and authority. So we then talked about all the ways that the government might then try and maintain power whether that's through, you know, increased force and oppression, or maybe like through pittance and distraction, which we call bread and circuses, or whether they opt for actual real change in policies and institutions that basically allow them to regain the trust of the people. Well, throughout history, one of the biggest contributors to the uprising of people against their government is the unbearably high disparity in the distribution of wealth. When a small percentage of people are bringing in the majority of the wealth, and the larger and larger percent of the population is falling into poverty, you know, it can start to cause real division and eventually for people to revolt. And obviously, like in our current global system, and especially within the United States, we're currently seeing this exploding disparity of wealth and a political system that's rigged to keep it that way. And you know, when you talk about the wealth disparity and how that's increasing at such a high rate, I think it's interesting that you mentioned like pittance or distraction, right? These methods that the government can use to try to keep people calm. And I think that works just fine. I think people can still continue even if they're not in an ideal state. But I think it's when people don't have their basic needs met. That's when they start to get desperate. And that personally is what makes me scared because I feel like at that point, people start to make really drastic decisions. Yeah. And you know, it's becoming more and more obvious. I feel like in the past, and it was certainly this way for me, that like we didn't see the inequality, but I feel like my eyes have been open to it these last couple of years. And I think more and more people are able to see that something isn't right. 
it used to just be that inequality was a part of capitalism, that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. People would say like the wealthy deserved all the money they had because they worked harder and were smarter. They took larger risks. But recently, and especially with COVID-19, to me, it's become way more clear that there's something more going on. And so the topic of today's episode is wealth disparity, what that inequality means and why it can be such a problem. Yeah, and I've got a few thoughts because I knew we were going to be talking about this today, but it's actually something that's been on my mind for a really long time. When I was little, as a kid, I remember my brother came home from school once, and I don't know what kind of a teacher he had, but he came home with a list of facts about the richest people in the world. And one of those was, he, he said, if Bill Gates had all of his money in $100 bills, and he was shoveling that money into a fire as fast as he could 24-7 for the rest of his life, he would never get rid of all of his money. And I remember as a kid just being totally blown away by that. I had a paper route and I think I made like $100 a month. But anyways, I've gone back and looked at how much Bill Gates made in the 90s. And at least in 1995, his net worth was $14.8 billion, right? Which is absolutely insane. But Jeff Bezos today has a net worth of $182 billion, which is 12.29 times as much. And so I feel like for a long time, my eyes have been open to just how insane the wealth disparity is, at least when it comes to the ultra wealthy. And by the way, I have no idea who made those calculations. I don't know how big of a shovel they assumed that Bill Gates had or how much money he could shovel into a fire by the second but either way, this topic is really interesting to me, and I'm excited to learn from you and also share a few thoughts that I've got. Yeah, I love that example of Jeff Bezos, and I think it's a testament to the fact of how freaking fast everything is changing. Wealth disparity isn't something that's been the same throughout the last century. You know, it's ever-evolving, and the direction it's headed is, to me, pretty terrifying. We really saw a rise of the middle class after World War II, and it strengthened into the 60s but has been disappearing since. I mean, just look at these numbers. So from 1970 to 2018, the share of aggregate income going to middle-class households fell from 62% of all income to just 43%. In the same time frame, the share held by upper-income households increased from 29% to 48%. So we're talking about a third decrease in the total amount of money going to the middle class and like a 40% increase in the amount of income going to the upper class. So basically the middle class keeps getting smaller and smaller and the ones in the upper classes are taking just this ginormous share of income and wealth. The lowest income tier in 1970 earned just 10% of all income. And in 2020, it's roughly the same, but has dropped a little bit to 9%. So to me, in just 50 years, you know, that is a huge shift in where all the money is going and is not really a great signal of things to come. And here's the crazy thing to me. So the most commonly used definition for a middle-class household is that you need to earn between two-thirds and double the median household income. In the U.S., the median household income is $63,000. So two-thirds of that would be $40,000, and double it would be $130,000. So if you, in the U.S., make between $40,000 and $130,000, you're probably considered middle-class. And to me, that seems like this huge range in income, right? Like below $40,000, I can see how it could be a struggle to get by with your average family of three. And over 130 k just seems like this absurd amount of money. And obviously that could depend a little bit on your cost of living and such. But the crazy thing is that today, only 50% of American households are in that range. 
are considered middle class. The other half are either in the extreme lows or in the extreme highs. So it's just interesting to me to think that not only is the middle class shrinking right now, but what is considered upper and lower classes are pretty extreme in either the amount of money that you have to make or that you're not making. So you just read off a lot of numbers that show people are being pushed either to one extreme or the other. And just as like an anecdote, for me personally, and I think for pretty much everyone out there, if you see people around you making a lot more than you, especially if you are working just as hard or you feel like you're contributing just as much to society, that can be a real friction point, right? And the more people that get pushed into these groups who are barely getting by or on the other end are living this lavish lifestyle, I can see how that would cause a lot of societal issues, a lot of friction in society. Yeah, right. And it's obvious and intuitive that wealth disparity hurts the poor. The more people put into the lower income brackets, there's not only less contribution from them into the economy, but they also require more welfare. And that means that while they're not paying taxes, more of the existing government budget is going towards helping them get by. And as poverty increases, those populations get less education. So, you know, they're making less money in the future. They're more often reverting to crime. It's also harder for them to get access to healthcare, which is something we've seen a lot of during the coronavirus pandemic. You know, it's not just the old that are dying, but also the poor. The African-American community has been especially hard hit, mainly because of less access to adequate health care. So that's all obvious. But less intuitively is that wealth disparity also hurts the wealthy. You know, if I'm a wealthy business owner, the more people that are buying my stuff, the better off I am. If less people are able to afford my stuff, my business is going to suffer. My stockholders are also going to suffer And the economy as a whole goes into decline. Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Company, he offered very high wages to his workers. It was about double what the average worker at the time was paid for that type of work. And it wasn't necessarily because he was this super nice guy and just cared about his employees' well-being. But in part, he knew that if he paid them more, they would be able to afford his cars. So he was actually expanding his market. Today in the U.S., the average warehouse worker makes about 16 bucks an hour. So the example I just used would be like Jeff Bezos paying his warehouse workers double that, so $32 an hour. And obviously he doesn't do that. Their pay starts at about 15 bucks an hour for warehouse workers. So that's even below the national average. And I just wonder, you know, does, does Jeff Bezos know that if he paid his 1.2 million employees better, they could be some of his most loyal <laughs> customers, right? And he would be expanding his market by doing so. And so it's argued that Henry Ford's model for paying his employees is what gave rise to the middle class in the 20th century and what allowed the average American to be able to afford a home and a property and a car, kind of that classic lifestyle that we see out of like all the 70s sitcoms, right? And that's something that we have slipped far from since. I hear you mentioned Jeff Bezos and we've mentioned him a couple times already. And he's an easy one to pick on because the amount of wealth he has is just so absurd. But I've seen some things around just the wealth disparity within your average company. And my understanding is that in the last few decades, right, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it used to be a CEO would make like four times or five times as much as their average employee. And it's something crazy now, right? They make like 30 or 40 times as much as their average employee. So as we talk about this, I think it's not just an issue with like the ultra mega wealthy. We're not just talking about a few outliers here. It's overall like a widening gap. 
Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because I don't have the exact numbers for Jeff Bezos, but I do know that the average CEO pay is actually more like 270 times the average worker. And that's not the lowest paid worker, but the average. And the average worker is paid around $60,000 a year. So not only do CEOs make you know almost 10 times more what, what your thought was, but since 1978, CEO pay has actually grown by around 1,000%. So we're on this trend where they are paying themselves much, much more than even the last 30 or 40, 50 years. And I know people will say, well, you know, they're the CEOs. It's their company. They built it. Um, The average guy in a warehouse doesn't risk anything. He didn't build the company. He didn't invest. And that's true. You know, the CEO does deserve to be paid more and even much more than the average worker. But approaching 300 times the amount to me just seems exaggerated. Yeah, and this is where, you know, I don't want to get off into a tangent, but at least in my mind, this is where I start to think of the more philosophical side of it. You know, I think some underlying questions come up, like what are we okay with as a society? At what point do the wages of a CEO become just ridiculous? Are we there yet? Are are we okay with that? You know, growing up, I was kind of spoon-fed capitalism and how wonderful it is and it's the best system out there and i don't dislike capitalism necessarily i think there's so much good about it and i know in an upcoming episode we also intend to talk a little bit about the moral decline of society and how that's contributing to collapse right regardless of what your morals are and what lines you draw for what you think is right or wrong it seems like everyone can agree that greed isn't a healthy thing for individuals or for societies And maybe capitalism would be a perfect system if we could eliminate greed, if people could limit themselves. But going back to what those root questions are, you know, are there certain fundamental human rights? Should everyone have kind of an equal opportunity to excel and succeed financially? Because currently that's not the case, right? If you are born into a wealthy household and all the things that you learn, all the things that you see, all the things that you're given, you know, you're put through a better education. Maybe your first car is paid for. Maybe your higher education is totally taken care of and you're kind of set up for success, right? It's kind of just handed to you on a silver platter. Whereas on the opposite end, if you're born into poverty, you're facing all those issues you talked about before where you're going to have worse education, there's going to be more crime, you're probably even malnourished, and you can work hard and make life better for yourself in a situation like that. But no matter how hard you work, you are never going to be able to catch up unless you have an insane amount of luck. You will never catch up to the person who was born in a wealthy household. So I just think, do we believe that people should have a comparable opportunity to succeed? And at what point do we need some sort of limitations on our current system? Well, the hardcore, unfettered corporate capitalists would say, Kellen, if they're not incentivized to put forth the risk and build the companies from the ground up and innovate, then they're just not going to and there's not any advancement, right? But to me, I'm thinking, do they really need 300 times as much the average to feel incentivized? Like if Jeff Bezos knew he could make 10 to 20 times as much, do you think he'd be like, nah, I'll just be an average worker. It's not worth it. But with capitalism, the way things are, it's their right to do what they want and make as much money as they want with no limitations. And so it is more of a moral question. And so I think the idea of morals in collapse is super interesting. And I know you've brought it up to me before that you think that the moral decay is one of the biggest potential causes of collapse as well. And so I'll be interested to hear about that in that upcoming episode. 
Yeah, it's definitely a huge contributor, and I'll be excited to talk about that. But going back to what you said about incentives, that's one of the biggest arguments for just straight capitalism, right? There won't be any industry, there won't be any progress if you don't have an uncapped way for people to be incentivized, which I think there is some truth there. But I think of like, as an example, if I were to say to you, Corey, if you run 100 yards, if you do a 100 yard dash or a sprint, I'll pay you 10 bucks. Would you do it? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I think I probably would. Sound like you're on the fence a little bit. What if I said for 20 bucks? Yeah, I think 20 bucks would definitely... I'd I'd do it. Yeah, I think most people would. And maybe there's somebody out there who's like, man, sprinting 100 yards with my sedentary lifestyle is totally (laughs) not worth it. Maybe if you make it 30 or 40 or 50, right? But I think it would be ridiculous if I were to say, hey, Corey, if you sprint 100 yards, I'll pay you a thousand bucks or a million bucks, right? At some point, there's a diminishing rate of returns on the incentives that we're given. We talked about how CEOs are making, right? I thought it was like 30 or 40 times as much. You said it's getting up near 300 times as much as the average employee. But decades ago, when that wasn't the case, were CEOs just totally unmotivated, sitting around, twiddling their thumbs, not willing to put any work in? Clearly, that argument, when taken to the extreme that we're in, is flawed. So we've established that the wealth gap is increasing, that it's pretty insane at this point. But from your perspective, Corey, why is that so dangerous to society? Yeah, so the middle class is what offers stability to the economy. You know, they're the ones who are making modest investments. They're spending money at the store buying not just necessities, but also some luxuries as well, right? The lower class buys really only what they need to get by, and much of what they purchase is through debt, which is a tool that keeps them trapped in that cycle. The money in the upper class gets put into things that don't directly stimulate the economy. So, you know, every dollar that gets taken from the middle class and given to the upper class is a dollar that sits in an investment somewhere, not really doing any good for the economy, but will sit there for 40 or 50 years until that person retires. If that dollar was in the hands of a middle-class person, you know, it's being spent on a good or a service where it's hopefully then being transferred to another middle or lower-class person who's going to continue that cycle, and that helps the economy to stay stable. But as the middle-class starts to disappear, and that money, as we've seen, is being transferred to upper-classes, we're seeing a weakening economy and the death of, like, Main Street, America, you know, small businesses... And so we've talked quite a bit about feedback loops in the past, and this is a prime example of a positive feedback loop. The smaller the middle class gets and the larger the extremes get, the more and more destabilized the economy becomes. More people in poverty means more suffering and less spending. More people in wealth means more investments in bubbles that are eventually going to burst because the middle class isn't there to make those investments increase in value. What I mean by that is if I'm wealthy and I'm putting my money in the stock market, betting on the increased value of companies, and yet the money I'm putting in there was taken from the shrinking middle class who gives value to those companies by stimulating the economy, then it's just a bubble waiting to burst. So to clarify that in case it isn't clear, the middle class are the ones that are putting money into businesses, helping them to become more valuable. The upper class is throwing all their money into the stock market saying, we're betting that those companies are going to become more valuable. And without that middle class then those companies won't increase in value. The upper class's investments don't pan out. And overall, it's just terrible for the economy. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's so interesting to me that you say that because, you know, my personality, I'm the type that I'm just kind of a, I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades, but a master at none. I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I like to try and stay informed. And I saw some things recently some analysis of data that was looking at social policy and some of the policies put in by governments of decades ago. And my understanding is that several decades ago, some of the policies put into place were put there under this philosophy that if you give tax breaks to the wealthy, that will help everybody, that that wealth will trickle down to everybody else. And at least in the analysis of data that I saw, supposedly that's not the case. That here for 30, 40 years, however long, we've been giving tax breaks to the wealthy because the assumption is that would help the rest of us. But really, giving tax breaks to the wealthy only really helps the wealthy. Right. And up to this point, we've only talked about the lesser extremes, right? The difference between the lower, middle, and upper class. But what you're talking about, and this is where it really gets crazy absurd, is the sheer amount of money the ultra-wealthy hold. So just for example, the top 1%, and this is anyone in the U.S. that makes over $500,000 a year, they hold 30.4% of all the wealth in the U.S. In 2012, it was just 24%. And in 1976, it was 9%. So in just 44 years, that number has more than tripled, and it's grown by 25% in just eight years. And that's just mind-blowing to me. That is so crazy, right? To think, I think you mentioned that 2012, the top 1% of the population had 24% of the wealth. And that in just the last, what, nine years, that's gone up to 30%. I mean, we talk all the time on this podcast about things that are unsustainable. I can't think of anything more unsustainable than that much of an upside-down pyramid, right? Where the majority of the population is trying to hold up the 1%. Yeah, and that's just one end of the pyramid. What's even crazier to me is the other end, where the bottom 50%, so the bottom half of all people in the U.S., hold less than 2% of the wealth. So the disparity there is just unbelievable. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I don't think I had any idea that it was that exaggerated. So as the middle class disappears and the lower class is growing in size, I mean, it's, it's surely unsustainable. And it's hard to grasp sort of these insane numbers. It's easy for us to just spit numbers in a microphone. So we'll link to a YouTube video in the description that makes it much clearer. The guy who presents it does it in a way that you can actually really visualize what those numbers represent and how it's changed. And it's also interesting because he shows people's perception of what the wealth disparity actually is compared to reality. And it's fascinating. So a couple other negatives that come from wealth disparity is, like I mentioned before, there's an increase in crime. So multiple studies have shown that both property crime and violent crime increase in areas with wider wealth disparity. Those same studies also showed that both types of crime were directed more at wealthy neighborhoods from the poorer neighborhoods. 
And so this is where we get into the whole us versus them mentality, because the worse inequality gets, the more potential there is for conflict. And so the last thing to mention in regards to consequences of inequality is that there's an increased potential for large-scale conflict, and just recognizing the fact that increasing inequality is a classic sign of empires in decline. Throughout history, empires have risen and fallen, but an indicator that each one of those empires was on the way out was that there was sort of this unfettered increase in inequality. Yeah, and this is where I'm excited to jump in, because when you mentioned to me we were going to be talking about inequality and wealth disparity, I wanted to see what that has done in previous civilizations, previous empires. And you're absolutely right. In fact, there's an article, an academic article in a peer-reviewed journal. It's called Human and Nature Dynamics, Modeling Inequality and Use of Resources in the Collapse or Sustainability of Societies, which is a mouthful. But it was published in a journal called Ecological Economics. But I just want to read a couple of lines, at least from the abstract of that article. And again, kind of academic, but try and follow along. The model shows economic stratification or ecological strain can independently lead to collapse in agreement with the historical record. And then it says the new dynamics of this model can also reproduce the irreversible collapses found in history. So in other words, this model has been developed where they can actually go play it back on past times and it accurately predicts the collapses that took place. Anyway, so the article talks about two different independent reasons why collapse happens. Part of it is using up resources, right, and the depletion of nature. But another part is the distribution of those resources. And as you look at past empires, one of the most notable that has seen a lot of disruption and you could say even collapse was France and the French Revolution. You know, and just like any revolution, there's a whole lot of causes, a lot of factors that go into it, right? There was kind of the Age of Enlightenment where people were starting to focus a lot more on human rights and freedoms and kind of breaking away from tradition. France was seeing what was going on with the American Revolution. You know, there was the printed press that was allowing the masses to become more educated about what was going on. A lot of things were taking place, but one of the primary factors of what happened in France was that the king, the monarch, was kind of promoting these established classes, this class system, right? They called them estates, these three estates, where you've got the clergy, the nobility, but then you've just got all the common people. And the decision made by the monarch was everybody gets taxed except for the clergy and the nobility, the first and second estates. And so the rich were just living such an extraordinarily lavish lifestyle, right? A life of complete luxury, and they weren't paying any taxes. And then you have all the poor working class that are paying, you know, I saw some things that said, depending on the year, 50% of their income. And it fluctuated, and, and there were times where the harvest was poor, when people got hit especially hard. But it got to this point where there was a huge wealth gap, and the wealthy had stupid amounts of money, right? They didn't even know what to do with it. And the poor are suffering and starving, and people are dying. And in the midst of that, there's France going into debt as they fund the American Revolution. But it did get to a point where it was unsustainable and so unbearable that eventually the king, King Louis, you know, I think he was the 16th, he's beheaded. And later Marie Antoinette, also beheaded, spins the nation, who was once this empire, this global power, into a whole series of revolutions 
a lot of social upheaval leaders coming in and trying to crack down and I think there were multiple constitutions written, multiple governments established, lots of fractions created, kind of what we picture when we think of societal collapse. And so a huge part of that was that wealth disparity. So when we talk about wealth disparity, there's a lot of different ways we can measure it, right? You threw out numbers, Corey, around like, yeah, this percentage of the population, the lower 20% owns this much and the upper 1% owns this much. There's actually something called the Gini coefficient. I believe it was developed by an Italian guy whose last name was Gini. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it is a way to measure equality or inequality. And basically, if the number comes out as zero, that means it is completely equitable. Everybody has exactly the same. And if the number comes out as one, it means it is completely inequitable, right? One person holds all the wealth. So it's this measure between zero and one to determine wealth inequality. And to give you an idea, in France in 1789, right, this time period that we're talking about, the Gini coefficient of the nation was 0.59, which is pretty extreme. A couple years ago in 2018, the United States had a Gini coefficient of 0.49. So we are catching up quickly. And then you add on top of that what's happened just over the course of this last year with the pandemic. And to me, it's just more evidence that the path we're on is completely unsustainable. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about how drastic it got and what it eventually led to in France. And how when you talk about the Gini coefficient, we're really not that far from that. And it's changing rapidly. I will be really interested to see whenever the reports start coming out about 2020, 2021 levels of inequality and how much it's changed just from the wealth transfers that we've seen during coronavirus. And so that kind of leads me into the last point here, and that is, how does that wealth get transferred from the poor and middle classes upward to the upper classes? So when it comes to how much money has actually been transferred to the wealthy from the middle class, a recent study done by the Rand Corporation shows that over the past 40 years, $50 trillion has been moved from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. If that amount had been remained more equally spread out, it would have more than doubled the median income. So middle-class workers would be making upwards of $120,000 a year on average. So the question comes up then, like, how did that $50 trillion make its way out of middle-class pockets into upper pockets? And there are tons of different things. Historically, things like tax laws, like that of Trump in 2017, are a great example of one way it's transferred. We've set up this system where lobbyists can influence and create laws and policies that solidify their status and make accumulating more wealth easier. If the wealthy are able to be the ones to write the laws, they're going to write them in a way that allows them to make more money. You know, during 2008, huge companies had overextended themselves and were bailed out by the government. And that burden comes back on the taxpayers, whether that's through the taxes they're paying, you know, increased taxes or through inflation. And, you know, it happened again during COVID with one example being airlines, which were given like $50 billion or something for a bailout. You know, and this is after they knowingly are overextending themselves. They tell us, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? And that we should have at least six months worth of savings in our bank accounts to be prepared for the tough times. But then they allow big businesses to overextend themselves and then they just bail them out. During COVID-19 specifically, there's been a massive wealth transfer. When you look at things like the stock market, you see this amazing V-shaped recovery, right? It went down, it came back up. But the stock market 
doesn't represent the economy. Not only has the stock market been artificially inflated by the Federal Reserve, just pumping tons of money into it, but it also just represents big businesses. Small businesses, uh, the ones that are not publicly traded, they've been going out of business since COVID started. So by June of last year, there was already a 48% increase in bankruptcy claims. And honestly, that could almost be considered a state-mandated wealth transfer in that many of the small businesses were required to shut down completely, while bigger businesses like Walmart or Home Depot were not required to shut down. So what we saw during COVID was this massive shift of money away from the small guy and more towards big companies. You know, Amazon increased its employees by 50% and its stock price has doubled since last March. The recovery of the real economy is what's referred to as a K-shaped recovery, meaning that one portion of the population is recovering excellently from the recession, while the other portion is decreasing. So if looking at it on a chart, it would look like a K because you have both a rising line and a lowering line. And obviously the rising line is not the poor. During just a seven-month period during COVID, America's billionaires grew their wealth by a trillion dollars. And that growth represented a 33% increase in their wealth. So put in a different way, all the billionaires added up in the U.S. had a total of $3 trillion at the beginning of the pandemic. And in less than a year, it grew to a total of $4 trillion. And funny enough, or not funny, that $1 trillion increase is more money than the entirety of the COVID relief bill that just got pushed through at the end of last month. So the billionaires... There's like 600 billionaires in the U.S. made more amongst themselves than the entire amount of relief offered to us in this last COVID relief bill. Just crazy. And lastly, we've also seen this unprecedented housing crisis, right? With tens of millions of Americans not paying their rent or their mortgage, and they're now at risk for eviction or foreclosure. And I guarantee you there are real estate magnates out there just licking their lips right now because all these small-time landlords and homeowners are about to lose their properties, and the banks are going to be offering them up for like next to nothing. So in that process, the little like mom and pa landlords, the guys who own a couple of units and try and take care of their tenants, they're the ones that are going to be replaced by large real estate companies who could care less other than just making a buck. So we're going to likely see a large increase in slum properties, especially because people are now going to be able to afford less and less for their properties, which means large business landlords are going to be taking care of them less and less as well. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out. We don't know what the economy is going to do or how it's going to do it over these next couple of years, but I guarantee we will continue to see a large shift in who owns the wealth. And frankly, it makes me nervous. Not necessarily super nervous for myself personally, because I have a job and I know a lot of people don't, right? I feel very fortunate personally, but I think we've just kind of been delaying the inevitable with all the stimulus packages and the moratorium on evictions, right? At some point, all of this is going to catch up to us. And how long does it take before we are no longer in a place where people can get by just fine and be okay with pittance and distraction, right? At what point, as this continues to accelerate, do we get to where France was before the French Revolution? And the fact that we are on that path and that we are increasing the wealth disparity at the rate that we are makes me think this is one of the biggest things we should be concerned about. You add on top of it everything else we talked about, all the political issues, all the climate issues, all the complexity issues. A lot of those things feel like they're going to take time to gradually take their toll on us. But this is something where it seems like we are kind of on the brink. Yeah, I agree. I think it's dire. And look, we talked about before how we record these episodes a couple weeks in advance. Today is January 6th, and literally in just the last couple of hours, we have watched 
the political situation happening in Washington, D.C., right, with 30,000 Trump supporters converging on the Capitol building, breaching the Capitol building, interrupting this joint session of Congress where they're supposed to be certifying the votes for Joe Biden. It's an unprecedented event, and it just goes to show there are cracks in the American system, and they're no longer hiding really deep below the surface. We have a large number of people in this country who feel disenfranchised. This issue might, on the surface, be a left versus right issue. But what it's doing is it's undermining democracy and it's undermining our belief of a legitimate governance. And that's how we started the episode, talking about how as governments lose their legitimacy, they lose their power. And so it's scary to be in this time right now with an increasing wealth disparity and an ever-increasing amount of people who feel that the government is illegitimate and wondering at what point does it become so completely unsustainable, at what point does it go over the boiling point, and we have major repercussions from it. Thanks, Colin, for helping me with the episode, doing the research on that. It was a ton of fun. Not a lot else to say. Join our Patreon account, and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.